So there was a smell in the house. And you guys know, like, you know what it's like if you walk in your own house and it smells wrong? You know that feeling? Well, here's the deal. My wife, Whitney, has what we refer to as the super sniffer. Like, I'm pretty convinced that she knows when our boys' diapers need changed when they're at daycare and she's at work. Like, she's... Oh, Abel's, Abel needs his diaper change. Like, like, I'm convinced she's that good. She can tell the milk is bad, not even before she opens the lid, but before she opens the refrigerator. Like, Milk's bad. Six hours ago, it went bad. Like, that's how Whitney is, right? So she'll tell me all the time, there's a smell in the house. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and so it happened one day. She was about five months pregnant with Cohen. And Whitney texted me, and she said, there's a smell in this house right now. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. So I, I, was, I went on about my day doing what I was doing. We were, we were apart from each other, and a couple minutes later, she called me, and Wendy said, I need you to know, I did some searching on Google, which is always bad news at our house. It's like, you had that phantom pain. It turns out it's probably cancer. I went ahead and planned your funeral. Life insurance should kick in next week. Like, that's the way it goes when we Google at our house. I don't know about your house, but it's like bad, bad news. She called, and she said, it turns out that I think the smell smells like burning wires, and this is where I got nervous, because we remodeled our whole house, which means I'm the one who put in all the new light fixtures, all the new outlets, all the new light switches. So I <laughs> dropped whatever I was doing, and I drove home as fast as I could, because I knew, like, that is it, our house is about to go up, let's get out of here. And so I'm taking apart every light fixture, checking every light switch, making sure it's not hot, like, to the touch, you know, trying to figure out where in the world it's coming from. Everyone I unscrew, I'm like, there's going to be smoke, just billowing out of here, and the fire department's going to come, and house insurance, homeowner's insurance is going to be like, this is your fault, dude. And like, this is bad, bad news. So I'm, everything I go, I'm calling my friend who's an electrician, and I was like, does this smell like burning rubber? And he's like, I'm on the phone. But just, just imagine with me, and like, we're doing everything we can. I'm searching the house high and low, everywhere we can, can. I can't find the smell, and I'm running up the steps one more time because I have an idea, and I'm stopped on the landing of our stairs and I smell it, and I get down on my hands and knees, and I smell it on the floor, and I know immediately what the smell is. And it's at that point that I just take off and leave forever because I know what's about to happen at my house. A couple of nights before, mind you, I told you Whitney was five months pregnant. A couple of nights before, she was feeling ill and was laying on the couch, and we heard the dog get sick on the landing. And what happened was, Whitney said, please go clean that up and make sure you use the spray in the green bottle to clean it up afterwards so that it doesn't smell later. What I heard Whitney say was, I'm not watching, so just clean it up so I, know about, so I don't know about it. So <laughs> I got the paper towel, I wiped up the dog sickness, sorry, that's gross, and I think I got distracted is what we'll say. <laughs> like I just kind of forgot about the second step about spraying it with the hardwood floor cleaner. And so a couple days go by and there's an air vent right next to our landing and it was just blowing all of that smell all over the house. And so I kind of sheepishly walked downstairs and I was like, hey, uh, I know where the smell's coming from. And when he was like, yeah? I don't know what happened after that because that's when she knocked me out. Um, but when I came to, the smell was gone and everything was cool again, right? Like, like, that's how it goes for a lot of us, isn't it? Like, there's this problem happening in your life, and if I can just find the source of this, if I can just figure out where this is coming from, everything will be fine. Everything will be a-okay if I can just figure out how this is happening. And so here, here's what's happening. In America, 
depending on which stat you read, somewhere between 20 and 60% of marriages are ending in divorce. In America, marriage is one of the most derided institutions there is. And today we're going to talk about fighting to protect our marriage. But we're not going to talk about fighting politically. We're not going to talk about changing statutes and laws. Today we're going to talk about the real source of the issue for marriage in our culture. And the real problem is we're going to have to get down to the nitty-gritty of it and put some elbow grease into it to actually clean up the issue. Did you know that of every marriage in the United States, statistics vary, but they'll tell you that somewhere between 30 and 60% of marriages will experience a form of infidelity. So that means if you think about the divorce rate as it sits, and you think about that stat, you start to realize maybe one of the biggest problems with marriage in our culture is infidelity. And so then you start to think, well, the problem is everybody just cheats on everybody else. And, and you, you, maybe if you've been a, been a, a product of, of an infidelity situation, maybe if you, you were unfaithful, maybe if your spouse was unfaithful, maybe you have a friend who was unfaithful and you heard them say, it happened so fast. I don't even know. Like, all of a sudden, it just, it just was this thing, and, and out of nowhere, and it changed, and it came, and I don't, I don't know how it happened, but it happened so fast. But today what we're going to do is we're going to get to the root of that issue. Because I don't think it happened so fast. I think it was a long buildup over a long period of time. Before we get any further, I'm going to say what might be the most awkward statement I've ever made because I'm awkward. But I want to make sure this is clear because a lot of times when you talk about this as, as like a church and in church, people get like real weird about it. So I want to say this. If you feel the need to say amen, that's fine. Um, but I'm going to say this, and we're going to make this clear. God invented sex, and God cherishes when married people have sex. Don't elbow your wife. Uh, just You can write that down and take notes if you need to. Like, preacher said. I mean, that's, you know. But God invented sex, and God cherishes when married people have sex. Okay? It's cool. He didn't look down one day at Adam and Eve and go, Oh, man, what are they doing? I did not know that was coming. Like, like, this isn't how it works, okay? This is a gift that he gave to people as a part of creation. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't angry. There's a real danger, though, when it comes to, to sex. And the real danger starts in our hearts. The real danger starts that when you say, I'm faithful to my wife, but that doesn't mean I don't glance at the menu every once in a while, even though I know I'm not going to order. The real danger starts when you say, I'm faithful to my husband, but that doesn't mean I don't do some window shopping. The real danger starts when the time comes for you to say, you know what, I've never physically cheated, but I'm glad nobody can read my mind. And what happens then is, is, a, is a word that, that gets thrown around a lot called lust. And today we're going to talk a lot about the dangers of lust. And here, here's the thing. Here's the thing with, with lust is it's a very serious issue for a lot of people. And in fact, it's such a serious issue for Jesus that he addresses it specifically in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And we read this and we hear what Jesus is saying. If your right hand causes you to sin, gouge it out. And so we think to ourselves, hmm, I know for a fact that everyone in this room knows that that's a figure of speech. You know how I know? Because you're all looking at me. Like, it was a joke, guys. I was just kidding, okay? Relax. <laughs> like, we all know that when Jesus is saying this, he's saying it figuratively as an exaggeration. Here's the difference. In, in, a, in a modern American culture, exaggeration and hyperbole are the norm right? Everything's the best, everything's the greatest, the most important, the most fantastic, the most wonderful. But in the culture that Jesus is speaking to originally, to exaggerate to that extreme is, is going to draw everyone's attention because people didn't talk like that. There must not have been cable news. I don't know how else to explain it. People didn't use those kinds of terms. And so when you say, gouge out your eye, everyone's ears are going to perk up because everyone spoke literally so to speak figuratively in their day was, was a big deal. And so Jesus is saying this is a major, major problem that we need to draw attention to. And what he's telling them is he's saying run away from the thing that causes that lust in your life. So if he were here today, what he'd be saying is make sure the computer's in a public place in the house. If he was here today, what he'd be saying is make sure that if he were here today, what he would be saying is, if that guy at the office always kind of leaves you feeling a little dreamy because you're pretty sure he doesn't leave his socks directly by the hamper, don't talk to him anymore. What Jesus is saying is, wherever the lust comes in your life, make sure that you are far away from it. There's a very, diff very important difference that I want to make sure we're clear on. You see, lust is asking the question, what can I get? If you see someone, if you, you do the thing that a bunch of guys do, I've never done it before. I've heard about other people who kind of just, like just tilt their head just a little bit as somebody walks by. Or ladies, if you see the guy doing the dishes on TV and you're like, oh, he's beautiful. Like whatever it is for you. Lust is what can I get from that person? But love, which is the goal, is what can I give to that person? Lust is gratification without anything, without it costing you anything to begin with. Lust is all about you. Lust is all about self. And we've been talking for months now about how important it is that we understand that our lives have to be centered on other people, and it can't be centered on us as number one. Lust is what happens skin to skin, but love is what happens soul to soul. I'll tell you the truth right now. When you follow down the picture that leads to a pathway, the path of lust always ends with you alone, upset, and ashamed. What's interesting is how the conversation about lust has changed in the last 20 or so years. About 20 years ago, when you, start, when you talked about lust in a church or in the 70s or back in the day when you talked about lust, your biggest fear was like, a boy finding a dirty magazine in the woods or in under dad's mattress or like something like that. Like it was like a rare thing that happened. But it's starting in about 1996, 1997, the conversation about lust really started to change because of the, inter because of the advent of the internet. And what's crazy is how the, the conversation changed 20 years ago and how here we are 20 years later and the conversation is still the same. 
Did you know that in 2001, 18 million people viewed pornography per day online in the United States of America? Did you know that on average in 2014, 80 million people access pornography every day in the United States of America? It's becoming a, a problem that, that has reached epidemic proportions. Here's the craziest thing about it. There is no medical study that has been released on the effects of pornography on the brain. And it's not because people aren't aware of its dangers, but it's because of incidents like this. In 2013, the University of Montreal attempted to do a study on the effects of pornography on the brain of a developing teenage boy, but they couldn't find a control group. The way it works is every, every study has to have a control group and a variable group. And so the variable group would be the people who had, the boys who had viewed pornography, who had accessed it, who, and they see the change in their brains. The problem was the University of Montreal couldn't find anyone above the age of 13 who had never accessed pornography. In fact, now in 2016, the average age that a boy views pornography for the first time is 10, and most sociologists think by 2020 it could be as young as 7. And that's an average. It's why two weeks ago, Pamela Anderson, of all people, right, what a weird thing. She wrote an op-ed piece with her rabbi about the dangers of pornography and how it's killing marriages. And people just came after her from all angles, talking about how she just was washed up and she just couldn't be a part of it anymore and all that. But the bottom line was, even someone who could have for a long time been considered one of the centerpieces of this discussion of causing the problem is now on the other side going, listen, what happened and what is happening is a danger to marriage, is a danger to men, is a danger to the society society. Do you know that pornography is a $20 billion a year business? That's more than the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NHL can make combined in a year. Statistics vary, but they're pretty sure that something like 80 to 90 percent of girls and boys who are kidnapped for the purposes of human trafficking and sex slavery end up in some sort of pornography before the age of 20. 100,000 websites on the internet and the dark web are dedicated to child pornography alone. So to talk about porn as a serious and pervasive problem is the first step. To talk about lust in in a marriage, to talk about lust in a heart, even of a 10-year-old boy, is to start talking about how the picture can lead to a path. But there's another way, there's another way that the talk about lust has changed. I read an article a couple of months ago that said, what the internet did for teenage boys in the early 2000s is what the Kindle did for the average mom in the 2010s. And there are statistic after statistic and study after study, if you watch the Amazon bestseller list over the last 15 years, how the Amazon bestseller list has gone from normal, basic, everyday novels to salacious and crazy kind of written forms of pornography. And we call it Fifty Shades of Grey, and we call it Nicholas Sparks novels that create completely unrealistic expectations in a marriage just in the same way that, a, that visual porn does. But the, what happens is you can look at it on your Kindle and no one else knows about it. And so it's created this secret that now is affecting both sides of a marriage, the husband and the wife. And here's, here's the thing, like, I can read your faces, and I know that there are some of you in this room who are going, see, what you don't know is it doesn't really affect us like you think. 
And what you don't know is what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her, and what he doesn't know doesn't hurt him. And, and, I, and I know it because like, I have had conversations with people that go in that direction. And so if you're telling me that lust isn't a picture that leads down a path, if you're telling me that lust isn't, an, isn't, a, a cha- isn't a problem in your marriage, isn't a problem that's affecting the heart of your marriage, I, I want you to do this when you go home. I want you to go home and build a fire in your backyard, preferably a small one. It is raining, though, so it doesn't have to be too worrisome. Build a fire in your backyard and then throw all your computers in it. I'm just kidding. That'd be weird. <laughs> iPad, see you later. What I want you to do is go home and build the fire. And once it's good and burning, I want you to pick up a log, one that was already in there, and just hold it close to your chest. And tell me how long that lasts. Because you cannot carry the burning log without causing damage immediately. And this is what lust will do. Whether it's lust that happens because you've seen too many romantic comedies that create such unrealistic, impossible to meet expectations that no man will ever be as good as that guy on TV. Or it's that you've seen so much pornography that you can't believe your wife isn't like those girls on the computer. Or you've seen so much that you don't even know what works anymore. I don't don't know what it is for you, but somehow, one way or another, lust will burn you. And probably the number one way that it burns you is that it, it builds in you. And so you get to the point when the affair happens, and you've had to sit down and have the conversation about, I'm sorry, And you say it happened all of a sudden, but if you look back the path, you see that it might have started with a picture. It might have started with, it's just a book. It might have started with, it's just a video. It doesn't hurt anybody else. But it builds and it builds to the point when you realize that you've been unfaithful long before the night you spent together. There's a story in Scripture that is just a perfect example of what we're talking about today. It's the story of a guy named Joseph. If you're new to the Bible, you might get confused, but there's several guys in the Bible named Joseph. One, the most famous one probably is, De- is, uh, is Jesus' father. Jesus' father, Joseph, he is Mary, right? Mary and Joseph. There's another one named Joseph who ends up in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, chapter 39. That's where we're going to be. But in Genesis chapter 39, there's this guy named Joseph who has 12 brothers, and his 12 brothers hate him so much that they sell him into slavery. Like, you think you have a bad relationship with your siblings. He was sold into slavery by his to foreigners, moved off. They pretended he died. He ends up, through a long story being very short for the purposes of today, he ends up working for a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar finds out that Joseph is so special, is so cool, that he puts Joseph in charge of his entire house. In fact, look at what it says in Genesis chapter 39. It says, so he, Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I can relate. It's a difficult life to live. And after time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How could I do this in this sin, in this great wickedness against God? So she continued, oh, sorry, there's one more verse. Nope. And his, uh, yeah, okay, cool.
cool. We'll just continue on. So Potiphar's wife is the original cougar, right? She's this middle-aged woman who finds this houseboy attractive, and she starts coming to him, and she starts saying, come on. In fact, most people would tell you that when it says Potiphar concerned himself with nothing but what he ate, what it actually meant was Potiphar was now free because Joseph was in charge. Potiphar was free to just go and meet any need he wanted. So odds were Potiphar's wife, who we never know her name, wasn't very happy with her husband and wanted to find a way to get back at him because he was most likely being unfaithful. He was most likely running away. He was most likely doing all of the things she didn't want him to do. And so she goes to Joseph and she thinks this will show him. And she makes him an offer. But Joseph runs away. And I, and I want to I make sure you catch this. Joseph says, no, no way, no how, and he walks away. Joseph doesn't say, no, no way, no how, walk away, and start thinking, well, maybe next time if she comes back, we could, you know. Joseph doesn't say no and walk away and start daydreaming. Joseph doesn't say no and think, I sure like to, though. And, and you know how I know that? I know it because as, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he wouldn't listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. So she gets aggressive. She's tired of hearing no and she's not going to take no for an answer. And she grabs him by the coat, and she says, come to bed with me. And what's Joseph's response? No. And he runs. And it took me a long time to realize how Joseph had that kind of, of willpower. How did Joseph get to the point where he was so capable of the fact that a, a woman who no doubt was probably attractive, who no doubt probably was making him an offer that sounded interesting, how was it that he was capable of running away? And I realized that it comes in the verses before. You see, it comes in the verses before when she says, come to with me, and he says no, and he walks away. It comes in the verses when she says, come to bed with me, and he doesn't stop and think. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't imagine how it could be. He doesn't picture them in a cabin on the mountains. He doesn't think about, well, you know, no one might ever know, and I can just daydream about it for a minute. What he does is he says no, and he turns his mind to something else. You see, what I've come to realize about lust is that lust is practice. Here we are talking about practice, right? But lust is practice. And it's practice because the, the time comes when we say no, but mentally we, we keep going. The time comes when no one else knows, but we think, if I ever got a chance with. And it's this practice that continues. And I never realized the importance of practice. It took me a while. But what happens with practice is practice creates habit, and then habit becomes response. And so with lust, when we practice, when we continue to go on in our mind, even though we're not physically, what happens is it creates a habit, and habit creates response. I miss the days when I was 16 and I knew everything. I don't know if you guys remember those days too. But I played football all through middle school and high school, and I knew more than my football coaches ever would have dreamed about at age 16. I'm now in my seventh year of helping coach football, and I wish that I had 16-year-old Ben's brain because I never know what to do now. And uh, it's always this moment where, where I'm like, man, I knew it all back then. 
One of the things I knew most when I was 16 is that if I ever was a football coach, I'd be a lot less boring than my football coaches were. Because every day for six years at the beginning of practice, for the first 20 minutes of practice, we practiced to create habits. And so I played offensive line. As you can tell, I was not allowed to run the ball. And as an offensive lineman, every day, the first 20 minutes of practice were dedicated to practicing the three-point stance. It's a basic part of football. First 20 minutes were the three-point stance, first step, second step. Three-point stance, first step, second step. Over and over and over again. And every day we'd say, Coach, do we have to do it today? Do we have to do stance and start today? And Coach would say, yep, going to make it a habit. And for years and years, my whole 16, 17, 18-year-old life, I'm going, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do this? And then I'll never forget, so I took the time off, right? I went to college. I didn't play football. I didn't coach football. I wasn't around football. And I came here to this area, and I got a call to help coach football at Bracken County. Go Polar Bears. And I went to my first practice, and I had given it no thought. And I get to practice, and I get there, and the coach who's the head coach at the time looks at me and says, you're going to help with the offensive linemen. It's time for practice. And I was like, oh, what do we do? Uh, And so we run over to to our spot where we're doing our drill. And I said, all right, boys, let's let's get in a three-point stance. And for the first time in five years, my feet pointed straight and were shoulder-width apart. My knees bent at the perfect angle. I actually think that guy's three-point stance wasn't very good, but he's an NFL player, so it's fine. Um, My back was at a 45 degrees. My eyes were up. My hands were down, just enough weight on my hand. My left hand at my knee, ready to go. And it had been five years since I had touched a football, years since I'd watched a game, years since I'd broken down film. But in that moment, I realized that six years of doing the same thing every day at every practice formed a habit that became the natural reaction. And so now here we are, 10 years later, and I'm still coaching football, and the first thing that I do with my guys every day is the things that create habits. Because practice creates habits. So when you see that girl and your eyes linger for a little bit too long and you start to think about, what if I had the chance? Or when your eyes see that guy or however it works for you, when that moment comes when you realize if anyone else knew what I was thinking at this very moment, I would probably not be married anymore. What you're doing is you're creating a practice that's going to turn into a habit. And when the moment comes when you're presented with the opportunity, you're going to go into habit mode and your response is going to be, I don't know how I ended up here, but I'm about to have a difficult conversation. I don't know how I ended up here in court and my kids have separate Christmases. I don't know how I ended up here in an apartment by myself because my wife won't look at me anymore. I don't know how I let my kids down. I don't know how I let my family down, but you do. And it's because you started practicing a habit that became a reaction. And so my, my, my begging of you, my plea to you, is to change your direction is to realize that the picture, that the words create a pathway that leads to a practice, that leads to a habit, that leads to destruction. And to save your marriage, to save your future marriage, to save your family, even if they're not around yet, and to turn the other way. Here's the thing, like, 
if your heart is beating, I have no doubt that this is something you've struggled with in your life. And if you were paying attention, you read what Jesus said in the very first words that we shared together, and you read that he said, because of your lust, you will be thrown into the depths of hell, and you're going, oh, man, I'm in trouble. But there's a reason that we talk about doing it differently. And the reason that we talk about doing it differently is because Jesus did it differently. Because what he said is that we deserve to be thrown into the depths of hell for what we've done and for what we've thought and for what we've created and the habits that we're forming. But what he did was he came to this earth so that your marriage doesn't have to break up. He came to this earth so that your life doesn't have to be destroyed. He came to this marriage so that the evil forces that are fighting against our marriage every single day don't have to win, and he lived the perfect life. He had, he had all of the opportunity and all of the temptation that we face, and not once did he succumb to it. And so rather than getting what he deserved, which was to be exalted back into heaven, he took our place. And he died for you and for me. And he took my place on the cross. And so what we're going to do now here in these next few moments is the men are going to go back and they're going to bring the bread and they're going to bring the cup to you. And as they bring the bread and as they bring the cup, you're going to take a moment and you're going to remember that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.